but today we begin our new sermon series on the holy habit of worship. And we'll begin by asking the question, what is idolatry? And how can it be avoided? What is idolatry and how can it be avoided? We'll be focusing on commandments one and two of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. One of the dangers surrounding idolatry are our misconceptions that prevent us from seeing idolatry for what it really is. When we think of idolatry, many of us conjure up irrelevant statues of humanoid or mythological creatures depicted in temples and shrines across or originating from the ancient pantheon of Greek or Roman gods or the hieroglyphic images painted on ancient Egyptian architecture. Maybe you think about those sorts of idols. For most of us, we may think it ridiculous to bow down to an image carved in wood by a carpenter or chiseled in stone by a mason. J. John argues that it would be illogical, unattractive and ridiculous to worship this kind of idol. And perhaps we may think keeping the second commandment is easy because we'd never worship that kind of idol. That seems ridiculous to us. However, idols, idols don't have to be made out of precious stones or metals or carved in wood. Idols don't have to be the things that can be touched and held. Some of the most powerful idols live in the mind. The human mind can be the workshop where idols are continually being crafted. From ancient times to the present day, idolatry has been prevalent. So how can we define idolatry? It's hard to define it, isn't it? Idolatry occurs when we hold an object, value, idea or activity higher than God. When we hold anything higher than God in our hearts. But I'm sure you know that, don't you? You know that. So let's think about the passage. There's so much to think about in this passage. We will only be scratching the service today. This warrants, the Ten Commandments warrants a sermon series all by itself. But the Ten Commandments were part of the covenant that God made with Israel when he took them to be his special people. They were not given as a way to earn salvation. We don't earn our salvation by trying to fulfill each of the commandments. Salvation could only ever be a gift from God through faith in Christ, through faith in the Messiah. Salvation is a gift, not something we earn. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and the Bible itself says this. They were written by the finger of God on two tablet stones. I'd love to have seen them. I'd love to have seen them. The Ten Commandments were given as a gift to help the newly formed nation to have an identity that set it apart 
from all the other nations and cultures surrounding them. It all centered on God's love for them. And it centered on his desire for them to be like him. Loving God and loving others. God wrote his laws of love, setting them in stone to help his people know his love and apply it to others. Are you with me so far? This is a brief overview of the commandments. The Ten Commandments gave God's people clear boundaries that helped them to understand what God was like. Essentially, God was saying, be like me and do what I do because I am love. Be like me and do what I do because I am love. That's who he is. The Lord was helping his people to understand how to respond to him. And actually, how to be completely different in their practices compared with how the surrounding pagan nations responded to their gods. We could understand the Ten Commandments in this way. Don't trust false gods. Don't love false gods. Don't do evil things in God's name. Don't forget to rest. Honour your parents. Honour your family. Don't take what is not rightfully yours by killing, lusting, stealing, lying or coveting. God gave Israel the law to show them he was different. He was different to the pagan gods. But it also served as a mirror to show the people where they needed God to cleanse them. Are you with me? Yeah. While all the Ten Commandments deal with our responsibilities towards God, the first four focus particularly on how we respond to God's love by loving him. We love because he first loved us. The remaining six focus on how we treat other people. Interestingly, how we relate to God, how you and I relate to God, will impact how you and I treat other people. Are you with me? If we love God and obey him, we will also love each other. We'll love our neighbours and serve them. Right from the beginning, God warns his people about the perils of worshipping idols. An idol is a substitute for God, and therefore not a God at all, because there is only one true living God. Nevertheless, throughout Israel's story and struggle, they were continually tempted to worship idols. Why? It wasn't normal to have one God in that time. And here is God revealing himself as one, one God. The pagan nations surrounding Israel had numerous gods. But Israel's God was one, one living God. 
So why does God forbid idolatry? Well, let's think about the jealous nature of God to answer that question. Or we might be feeling a bit uncomfortable now. The word jealousy in the same sentence as the word God. Well, God describes himself as a jealous God. God describes himself as a jealous God. Not in the sense that he's envious of the other gods, no. But the jealousy that's being expressed here is that God loves his people so much, so much that he can't bear to be without them. He is jealous for their love. God wants his people's love and for it to be reciprocated by his people. Just as parents desire the love of their children or spouses desire the love of their parents, God is jealous over his beloved and he cannot be second best. God loves you and he wants to be first in your life. God could never, never be second best to figments of human imagination or demonic forces seeking to mislead and devour people. In the Bible, God takes idolatry very seriously because idolatry doesn't just affect the idolater, but it affects the entire family unit where there could be up to four generations living in one household. The Israelites had just come from Egypt, which was a land full of idols, bursting with idols. And these idols represented different aspects of life. And it was common to worship many gods in order to maximize the number of potential blessings that one could receive. It's a bit like gambling, isn't it? Maybe if I worship all of the gods, I will be blessed. One of them must pay off, surely. How wrong they were. How wrong they were. It wasn't so hard for Israel to worship God. Because they'd, worshipped, they'd witnessed incredible miracles. They delivered them out of slavery. They brought, he brought them liberation. God brought them liberation. So it wasn't easy for them to believe in God. Sorry, it wasn't, e it wasn't hard for them to believe in God. It was difficult for them to worship him and, him and him alone. That was the challenge. It wasn't difficult for them to worship God, but it was difficult for them to worship him and him alone because they'd been in Egypt for so long, a land full of idols, they'd had exposure to so many gods that promised them so many things. That was their challenge. So why do we need to know this today? Well, we must never underestimate the attraction of idols, even today. King Solomon, King Solomon from the Bible, was both the wisest man and the wealthiest man on the earth when he lived. He also achieved great things because he constructed the temple in Jerusalem. God even appeared to him twice 
God appeared to him twice. But despite all of that, in his old age, Solomon turned to worship in foreign gods, the gods of his many wives. And Solomon became an idolater. Wow. Despite knowing it was wrong, and despite being personally warned against marrying foreign wives for this exact reason, in the end he was drawn to worship their false gods. Solomon did not resist, and eventually he worshipped the gods Ashtoreth and Molech. What's so bad about that, we might think? Sounds all right. Do we not all on a regular basis make small compromises in our everyday lives? We do, don't we? We're always making compromises in our everyday lives. But Solomon made a huge compromise here when he worshipped other gods. Remember, the Lord revealed that he was jealous, and he is jealous for our love. And Solomon had compromised himself and his love for the one true God. So let's think about Solomon. Solomon worshipped a god called Ashtoreth, or Astarte, who was the Canaanite mother goddess. We might know her as Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sexual love. She was identified with fertility rites, sexual practices, and prostitution was central for her veneration. You can see why Solomon's on a slippery slope, can't you? Solomon also worshipped the detestable gods Molech and Chemosh, and he built shrines for his wives to worship these false deities. Child sacrifice was a necessary part of venerating and appeasing these gods. Idolatry had led Solomon astray, and the consequences were dire for him and for his people because now they were sacrificing their own children. Oh, it's heavy. It's heavy, isn't it? Look where idolatry led Solomon. Not to a good place. We can see why the Lord hated these gods. They were against him and against life. Because utter destruction was foundational in worshipping them. I'm sorry that's a bit heavy, but we see there before us the consequences of Solomon's sin. So what do we need to do in response to all of this? Well, idolatry was around from the beginning of time. It was prevalent at the time of Moses and Solomon, and it was around at the time of Jesus. One of Jesus' best friends, the Apostle John, reminds us to keep ourselves from idols. In other words, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. We need to hear this today, now more than ever. Because an idol is anything that takes the place that is rightfully God's. An idol can be anything we devote our energy and our time to. And something we will sacrifice for, because we love it and we serve it. What idols entice us today? Is it money, possessions, careers, nice holidays, sports, music, arts, relationships, 
sex, power, or our body and self-image. All of these things are good, are they not? Yes, they are good when they're in their rightful place. These things are blessings when they're in their rightful place. But these things cannot become like God's to us. That is dangerous for us. When we rely on them for our personal identity, our meaning and our security, we're in trouble. Because these things will never, never satisfy us. Never bring us salvation. Never bring us life. It could be easy for these things to grow into God's and be central to our lives, controlling our thoughts and energies. But we must give God the central place in our lives. That's the message for today. Give God the central place in your life. J. John helpfully offers the following statements as a way of helping us to do that and staying committed to God. And I'll read these statements slowly. And it's okay if you can't agree to the statement and say for you it's true. Because we're on a journey, aren't we? And there's grace. God is graceful with us. And he's merciful. So here are the statements. Statement one. The Lord gives purpose, meaning and fulfillment to my life. Statement two. The Lord governs the way I act. Statement three, the Lord is the focal point for which my existence hangs. Statement four, the Lord is often in my thoughts and I get enthusiastic about God. Statement five, thoughts of the Lord comfort me when I am down. Statement six, I read about the Lord and I talk about the Lord. Statement seven. I make friends with people who are also committed to the Lord. Statement eight. I desire more of God. Do any things for, from the statement we have heard take God's place? in our lives. If there is, then we need to make sure our loyalties are not divided and that the Lord has the number one place in our lives and in our hearts. But how do we keep God at the center of our lives? Because it's really difficult, isn't it? It's really challenging. There's so many images, ideas, values, it's so difficult to keep God at the center of our lives. How do we do it? J. John argues that one of the answers is to give God our time. Give God our time by spending it regularly with God. He suggests there are four practices that help us develop in our relationship with God. They are giving time to praising God. Giving time to praising God giving time to reading the Bible, giving time for confession, which means laying our lives open to God, being honest and asking him 
where we haven't put him at the center of our lives. And finally, giving God time in prayer and bringing our lives before him, bringing everything before him and not trusting in false idols. Amen. How can we remember all of this? Worshipping God means giving God his rightful place in our lives and in our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to put you first in our lives and not rely on idols and other things when we should be relying on you. Thank you that you are the God who can actually help us. You are the God who loves us. You are the God who wants us. You are the God that's pursuing us. Remind us all today that you are jealous for our love. And you don't want us to be hurt by following false gods that can lead us to destruction. Protect us mentally and emotionally from such things. In Jesus' name, amen.